0: Nau mai whakarongo mai and welcome to The Policy Fix, a podcast by the Policy Observatory AUT. Ko Kerry Mills TNA, and today our podcast is an edited recording of a kōrero between Maria Barge, Associate Professor at Te Kaua Māui, Victoria University of Wellington, and David Hall from the Policy Observatory AUT. This conversation took place at the Auckland book launch of A Careful Revolution Towards a Lower Emissions Future on the 10th of July. The book is edited by David Hall and published by Bridget Williams Books. kōrua. We're going to start with the climate emergency since that's happening and everyone's talking about it. Both of you have expressed some reservations about the emergency. Could you let us know what those reservations are?
1: So being a little bit cautious of the phrase climate emergency puts me in rather strange company at times, because I am certainly an advocate for doing as much as we can. But I think that the question is whether climate emergency helps that or perhaps hinders that. And that's my worry, is that the climate emergency framing can potentially create a lot of resistance and pushback and slow down the sorts of changes that we want to see. You know, as a political scientist, we're we're quite naturally suspicious of language of emergencies because governments have a tendency to take emergency as a justification to use extraordinary powers and to push beyond a lot of um, ordinary processes, especially democratic processes, such as consultation and so on. So that's definitely one risk of, of climate emergency and one that would be quite likely to provoke pushback. But then the other risk is is that emergency is being used by elected officials as a strategy for looking like they're doing something very dramatic when actually they're doing something of little substance. A lot of the climate emergency declarations have been quite hollow. The Auckland Council declaration, I think, is exemplary on that front. It had. Six points, five of which started with the words continue to. So (laughs) it was very much a business-as-usual framing. Only the last one was doing something additional by saying that the council was going to put all of their decisions through a climate change lens. But to declare an emergency to get such a small administrative win like that is, it seems quite disproportionate. While the emergency is a symbolic gesture, potentially, that we can hold elected officials to account and say, you know, you're not taking this emergency seriously enough once they've declared it. The question is, is, is what are we asking them to do? So we're we going to be pushing for them to go around their own processes, pushing them to go around their consultation, pushing them to go around their obligations to te Tiriti o Waitangi. So these are the kinds of worries about the emergency framing, and especially the declaration of emergencies by um, political organisations like councils or government.
2: te Thank you for the welcome. Thank you all for being here this evening. I agree with many of the things David said, but also I guess from a historical perspective, when you look at whose rights tend to be dispensed with first, When we've had roading projects and things, it's usually Māori land that ends up being taken under the Public Works Act, and that's not even state of emergency. So, you know, the kind of history of dispensing with political and other rights I think for, for Māori, is a history that we're very familiar with. So that's a key worry. You know, also studying politicians and the behaviour of politicians, um, you do become a little bit cynical about um, these sorts of scenarios where greater powers are allocated to government, central or local government, for them to mobilise themselves. Yes, it might be good to have greater resources to get things cracking, but there might also be projects... That aren't that climate change sensitive, that they've had on the back burner and been unable to push through because communities have been objecting through the due legal process that we have, through the democratic process. And so a state of emergency might be of a way of, climate emergency might be a way of shortcutting past those communities who have probably valid concerns about large projects
1: and there is a way around this I mean you could say that a climate emergency is going to be a specific kind of emergency that involves these sorts of processes but it is different from the standard state of emergency that we know for instance in the Christchurch case you know where a large fence was built around the city centre I'm, I'm from Christchurch so I was stuck on the outside of that fence for quite a while and you know they went around the processes of community engagement and rebuilding the city and, you know, the city is left with that legacy of that kind of um, top-down state-driven decision-making by the, you know, the city centre. The plan just hasn't had any organic community input and so there's large gaps there rather than a thriving city and that's essentially what we need to do with the low emissions transition is to create a world that people are going to want to live in. So it's vital that everybody's input is part of that process. So if the advocates of climate emergency were to be explicit about what they mean when they're asking for an emergency, some of my scepticism might recede it somewhat. But at this stage, you know, emergency is being put forward as, a, as essentially an empty signifier which elected officials can fill with whatever they like. And the alternative is to say... A climate emergency requires us to do this, 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 and this, and, and make it led by action rather than a plea for authorities to take control in whatever way they see fit.
0: Mm-hmm. So, the book is called A Careful Revolution, mm-hmm. and your chapter in it, Mari, is called A Teka Transition. Could you guys both elaborate on what that means and how the two relate? Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs>
2: David mentioned the Auckland Council doing some work about a climate lens and thinking about different policies and proposals using some kind of lens. The the idea of a tikka transition is a little bit like that, to use some sort of lens by which to assess the different things that are going on. So tikka uh, means correct in, in Maori, and so tikanga are the sort of correct ways of doing things. And I think it's important to kind of consider this as a flexible set of ways of doing things, if you like. I think often there's a criticism about that Indigenous peoples are the canaries um, of climate change. They're going to feel it first and worst, and that they have this knowledge that's going to be obsolete once climate change is, you know, kicked in a bit further. And I think it's important to think about mātauranga Māori, Māori knowledge and other forms of indigenous knowledge, not just as a set of things that you know about stuff, but actually way, values and ways of looking at the world, so the kind of how you collect information as well about the environment, people, relationships between people and so on. Um, and that actually is adaptable and flexible over time and despite significant changes to the climate. There are kind of some key values that I think are important as part of that. Um, One is around tanga. That's a kind of key aspect of of Maori law and Maori ways of doing things is thinking about the the relationships between people, how they're looked after and cared for. I think one of the things we see in the the Crown's treaty settlement process at the moment is, isn't a great deal of care uh, taken around ensuring that ongoing positive relationships are maintained between peoples. The other element was around mana, and that in part is similar, thinking about the mana of the environment, the land, the waters, the water quality, all these kinds of issues, as well as the mana of people, people's views feeding into decision-making processes. So that's another kind of element. I think one of the really important ones, apart from kaitiakitanga, which you may be familiar with in terms of guardianship of the environment. But for me, one of the other really important ones is utu, which sometimes gets mistranslated as revenge, but is all about balance. And so Hirani Moko has a framework which he calls the takea utu Air framework. So it's not saying that in a, from a Māori worldview things can't become unbalanced. Things clearly have become unbalanced. And when it comes to water quality, that's another example. Things are unbalanced, but they can be rebalanced. Um, so, again, in a, in a kind of careful transition um, in revolution, <laughs> things can become unbalanced, but they can also be balanced out, if you like. So if there are subsidies, you know, getting to the nitty-gritty, if there are subsidies, things can be assessed, cost-benefit kinds of analyses, um, but things can follow a process and be rebalanced, and I think it's focusing on that that's quite important too.
1: Yeah, so another... Prominent framework of thinking about transitions, which is in the public conversation at the moment is is a just transition And that evolved out of the union movement Sam Huggard, the secretary of the New Zealand Council for trade unions he contributes a chapter to the book on this theme and this is again a way of thinking around how do we how do we navigate that change and how do we make sure that people aren't left behind and especially that workers in high emissions industries have some sort of stake and some sort of confidence in the future that they're being brought into and also where possible um, forms of assistance in order to make that transition from the jobs and the sectors that they know well into the jobs and the sectors of the future which are emerging as we go through this energy transition. So they've worked with, MB, the Ministry for Business, Innovation and Employment, which has a Just Transitions unit within it which is thinking around how to help with this transition and especially in that new Plymouth context where the choice was made by the government to cease issuing licenses or permits for offshore oil exploration which has major implications for the regional economy down there and so one of the things that happened in the budget was that money was committed to a new energy centre there. So so that's the kind of just transitions thinking where on the one hand you're taking something away but on the other hand you're providing something so that people can move into a sector and keep their well-being consistent while having to make this transition and not just being left in the cold. And I know that this government is especially alert to the dangers of not doing that well, given that they did it very poorly in the 80s with the reforms that occurred under the fourth Labour government. So it's reflecting on these sorts of disruptive transitions and what their effects are along the way, not just the ends, but also the means, which um, informed the, the title the Careful Revolution and the sense of care. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that those 1980 reforms lacked a sense of care both for, mm. the, for, for the ends and the means, and, and that was the disruption and the injustice occurred in, in both situations. Whereas in this situation, I think, when we're talking about the scale of disruption that climate change is likely to produce, you know, there's obviously a moral case for the ends of a low emissions transition. But the, those ends don't necessarily justify any means Mm. And so, a sense of care needs to be taken for the rollout of those reforms. It isn't sufficient just to feel that the ends justify themselves without any consideration of the disruption which is caused along yeah. the way.
0: Uh, you mentioned New Plymouth, David, <clears throat> but I wondered if there are any other examples of a careful revolution that's being done well, or in a way that's tika. or what would it look like if there were... Mm. Well, I guess, um, what would it look like?
2: I think in some senses here, because we're in Aotearoa, New Zealand, here I think it would need to still be grounded in the kind of constitutional framework in some ways that we have, political framework, certainly with the Treaty of Waitangi, Te Titi of Waitangi, and the sorts of obligations that the Crown has uh, to Māori and to treaty relationships. Mm. And so in the chapter I talk about um, a couple in particular one around partnerships, which I know some people don't like that, that idea, but certainly treaty relationships I think are key. And so that's sharing the decision making and an active protection of Māori rights and interests and some reciprocal relationships around that. Those are sort of key treaty principles that are fairly well known. I think one of the Difficulties with the zero carbon build is the, the way it doesn't really reflect the treaty obligations that the Crown has. Māori are to be consulted kind of after the fact around um, different plans, reduction plans and so on, and adaptation plans. Really, those need to be co-designed to really adhere to treaty obligations. Mm -hmm. You can't just design something and then go around later. Um, That doesn't really um, meet the kind of minimum threshold that we've now established around treaty obligations. Also, the the Climate Change Commission that's proposed, the idea of ensuring that there are nominations from Māori groups really, again, falls short of a a kind of minimum standard. Really, we need to be talking about the kinds of obligations for the commission itself, and what the makeup of the actual commission, not who nominates people, that's an issue, but much lesser of an issue than actually who's going to be sitting there. and I think ensuring that there's Mori representation on that commission is key, which isn't one of the proposals in the zero carbon bill
1: yeah it's it's very difficult to think of positive examples of of careful <laughs> revolutions, partly that is perhaps because the low emissions transition or, or revolution is is quite unique in many ways. I mean, unlike the agricultural revolution 10,000 years ago and the industrial revolution 200 odd years ago, there's a sense of preemptiveness around this particular technological revolution. You know, those earlier revolutions involved technologies that humans invented or stumbled upon and scaled up in ways that um, transformed human society and also unfortunately transformed the atmosphere and our landscapes along the way. And so, so we need to arrest those negative impacts now and to some extent to reverse them by doing what we can to unpick ourselves from a fossil fuel-dependent energy system and to reverse deforestation uh, as two obvious um, causes of climate change. But yeah, there is something quite unique here that we're afforded an opportunity to think about how exactly we want that revolution to play out, which I think is probably different to the way that those earlier revolutions happened. And then I think, I think maybe if we were to look for examples of careful revolutions, maybe we would find them more in, um, say, the social revolutions of the 1960s where people did transform society and which was a different kind of revolution, but perhaps that's a better example. I
2: think if we think about it a little bit differently in terms mm. of leadership, well we have seen New Zealand take leadership internationally on a number of issues, our nuclear-free policy but we've also more recently made a mountain given it its own legal personhood and a river so Te wera and Te Whanganui or Te awatupua, and both of those processes probably to lead to that were fraught but I think there are signs of hope and examples where we can kind of feel good about doing something internationally that's bold and different so I think there are moments of time that should give
0: us hope that something is possible. You've both got toolkits uh, as appendices to your chapters. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what's in those toolkits and what you're hoping that they will be used for. Well, my toolkits
2: mainly got questions, in fact, <laughs> in it, um, under each of the of the tikanga values that I um, picked out, as well as some of the treaty principles. And then I've also drawn in um, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, again, as a set of minimum standards that we have now internationally about how governments should be interacting and engaging with Indigenous peoples. And so alongside each of those, I have some questions, mostly for policymakers, but also for communities thinking about well, what should we be asking for? You know, there's a proposal for Something, wind farm, or you know, solar panels on the latest building here, or whatever it is. What are the types of questions that we should be thinking about if we're using a ticker lens? What would the, the kinds of questions we might ask council be? That's what mine involves. <laughs>
1: so, so there's 10 principles in the checklist that um, Jonathan Boston mostly devised, and I contributed to a little bit. I won't go through them all. But the intention very much was that policy is going to need to be done under urgency over the next 10 years. One of the things with urgency is the importance of checklists. Like This is one of the ways to mitigate against some of the errors and poor judgement that is made in conditions of urgency. And, you know, we have this myth of policy making being done in a way of you know analysing policy and checking all of the options and doing a sensitivity analysis and then assessing and the rational, policy. And it's, yeah, yeah, there's this there's this perfect idea I mean, of really, of the it's, cycle. is there an
2: election year coming <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. up? <laughs> and uh, what do we need to rush through before yeah, Christmas? Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> the 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 reality of policy making is much more crisis management, constant crisis management, and that's in a sense that decision making has always been done under under urgency. The problem is it's not always the, the urgency that we would like, it's more urgency around um, looming political scandals or, or embarrassments. And that's often where policy making is actually made is, is finding these quick turnaround solutions that, that address crises that are occurring in the moment. And so having these checklists is, is very helpful because it gives a chance for some more considered judgment perhaps to enter the policymaking process and to, and to make sure that policymakers are thinking around some of the potential secondary effects of their policy and not just focusing on that long-term destination. I, th- I think some of what's going on here is that this plea for emergency at the moment is, is sort of a manifestation of the larger problem of of a kind of crisis of representation in democracies generally, and that and that... Political decision makers are failing to represent the interests of all sorts of constituencies. They're they're failing to represent the interests of future people. They're failing to represent Māori. There's all sorts of other communities that are not being represented. And there is a large community, a majority of New Zealanders, who are concerned about climate change and do want to see change happen. And so they're also a neglected constituency that feel Mm -hmm. like they haven't been properly represented. And I kind of sense maybe that this call for emergency is this call for decision-makers to be decisive in a way that they haven't been up until now. And while I have reservations that that's the right way of asking for that decisiveness, it is perfectly understandable that it's come to this because... We've known about this problem at least since 1891, <laughs> um, when, when Svante Arrhenius, who, who happens to be an ancestor of Greta Thunberg, the um, climate activist, he sort of pulled together all the science around the global warming effect, and we've, you know, we've sat on that knowledge and, and done nothing really with it for many decades, and increasingly we are doing things with it, and. Sometimes it's said that we're doing nothing. That's, that's not right either. We are making huge strides. I mean, I think of the conversation with farmers at the moment. You know, it's, it's easy to forget that even just five years ago, there was massive denialism, whereas now the conversation is much more around, yes, we accept that change is, is happening and that we need to do something, but we're just disagreeing about how we do it. But that's a much better place to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, change is happening, and... It will be of a revolutionary scale. That's kind of inevitable. And um, it's just how how we manage that change.
2: And I don't know if anybody here attended any of the school climate change protests. I went with my children in Wellington, and I just felt like crying the whole way, basically, because there are all these kids... Um, nine and ten and younger going along chanting. A, they did very well on the organising and the chants, but B, you know, they knew about the issues and were, were calling for that action. Um, so that's kind of heartening and, and, and very
0: upsetting as well at the same time. Mm. I think that's a hopeful note to finish it on, if that's <laughs> right for you guys. please join me in thanking Marie and David. For more podcasts and how to subscribe, visit www.thepolicyobservatory.aut.ac.nz. Nō reira i te ko fakarongo mai nei. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa.